Hello, and welcome to 5280's Behind the Stories. This is episode three, and I'm your host, Jeff Van Dyke. Behind the Stories is a podcast about life in Denver and Colorado. On each episode of the podcast, I'll be joined by writers and editors to talk about pieces they've done for 5280 Magazine and 5280.com, and to provide listeners with a look inside how these pieces come together. For this episode, we're joined by Barbara Urzua, one of 5280's assistant editors. Hello. Jessica LaRusso, 5280's managing editor. Hey there. And Lindsay King, 5280's editor. Hi. Barbara, I wanted to start with you today. Each August, we publish our directory of the top doctors in Denver. Linz, how long have we done this now? Almost 30 years. 30 years. Um, And along with that, we often have a health-related feature. You wrote this year's piece on rare diseases, which because of their rarity are often not part of the healthcare conversation. And yet, as I was reading this, I was surprised to learn that one in 10 Coloradans suffer from rare diseases. This piece has multiple stories about families and patients dealing with rare diseases. And I'm wondering what you found as you were reporting this was maybe the biggest roadblock that they have in finding the care that they need. Yeah, so one of the biggest things is that it just takes a really long time for patients with rare diseases to get diagnosed. Um, And that can be that can be something that happens to everyone, whether they have a rare disease or not. But if you have a rare disease, the average is about seven to eight years to get a diagnosis. So one of the biggest things that a lot of people with rare diseases are facing is just being tossed around from specialist to specialist and not actually getting a diagnosis, which would help them get the care that they need. So during that time, I mean, that's that's seven to eight years is kind of stunning like that. I think we think we go to the doctor and we get a diagnosis and then we get the treatment. But as that's happening, they're having people like experimental things happen. Like there, there's a bit of guesswork there. One of the biggest things that a lot of people with rare diseases are facing is just not having medication tailored to their specific disease. So they'll be taking medication that could have just been made for some other disease entirely that's not even what they have. And the big reason for that is because pharmaceutical companies just do not have the incentives to create medications for these diseases, especially because it's just not a big return in financial investment for them. So um, recently, back in 2017, those incentives went down, and now it's just even worse than it ever was. So it's, it's really just a big snowball that keeps piling up on these people who don't have medications, and it's not covered, and it's just an incredible pain to actually find medication that works for you. I wanted to ask about that because, you know, in, dish, in addition to this period of time where you're trying to get a diagnosis then it's almost like this insult upon injury where you might not get medication or then you get medication, but it's not covered. You mentioned 2017 and and it becoming, uh, you know, pharmaceutical companies being less incentivized to go after these rare diseases. What happened in 2017? Yeah, so back in 2017, uh, former President Donald Trump decreased the in- incentives from 50% to 25% which means that before 2017, pharmaceutical companies could get 50% of their expenses in research for drugs covered, and now it's only 25%, which means that pharmaceutical companies, if they can't get money for the drugs that they're working on, just aren't going to work on them. 
Well, the other thing is, you know, you talk about the pharmaceutical companies not having incentives, but sometimes, as far as I know, they also just don't have the research they don't have people to be in trials because these diseases are so rare to be able to create drugs you have to actually have research subjects so is that is that part of the problem too right no exactly one of the patients we spoke with Carla Winchell experienced that exact same thing where she was like the only person in her clinical trial and that's just not enough research at all to get a a drug made so it's it's really just a double whammy all around if if you can't have medication, then you can't get your disease treated, but there's no medication in the first place because there's no money and there's no research. So it's really just awful all around. Uh, it's sort of this negative cycle that just keeps happening. I, you spoke with uh, Dr. Jennifer Taylor Kuzar. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. She was on the cover of, of the August issue of the magazine. She's a pulmonologist. But one of the things you spoke with her about was systemic racism in healthcare. Tell us a little bit about how that manifests specifically in the treatment of rare diseases. Yeah, so it's pretty well known already that there's systemic racism in healthcare. Um, there was a 2016 study that showed that many medical students don't believe that black patients have the same pain tolerance as white patients, which is terrifying. They, they believe that black patients actually have a higher pain tolerance, which is absolutely not correct. So when you're a person of color within the medical system trying to get care, it's just awful already. And then throw on top of that the fact that you have a rare disease where the baseline is just a terrible standard of care. You're just not going to get that that level of care that you need. Um, and Dr. Jennifer Taylor Cousart talked a lot about that. Um, and one thing that she has done that I wish I could have mentioned in the feature was that she has actually created a diagnosis tool it's not it's a screening tool actually where you can take the the tool online and it tells you if you have signs and symptoms of cystic fibrosis just because she's heard from a lot of her black patients that cystic fibrosis is not something that doctors think that they have because of the color of their skin and so she created this tool to help people of color actually prove to their healthcare providers that they might have cystic fibrosis. And so far, it's helped a lot of people. And she's just such an incredible person. And I'm so glad we got to cover her in the feature. Yeah, there's this stunning anecdote. It's it's um, sort of in Q&A format. But, you know, she talks about a doctor who had a black patient. And the doctor says, well, I think you have cystic fibrosis, but you're black. So it's it can't be that. And it's just kind of mind blowing. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's something that a lot of people with cystic fibrosis experience. Um, it's just a false narrative that um, only white people are getting cystic fibrosis, and that's absolutely not true. So on the brighter side of things, the CU Anschutz campus, there's an effort to coordinate their efforts on research into these rare diseases so doctors aren't maybe working in silos and there's a little more communication and, and a central clearinghouse for what they're finding. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so Dr. Melissa Handel is a researcher at CU Anschutz. She has a PhD in neuroscience, so she's definitely a smart person. And she created a database that would allow doctors, not only just at CU Anschutz, but across Colorado and hopefully across the nation, to input all of the information that they have on rare diseases into this database, which would then hopefully make diagnosis times a lot faster. 
Uh, we can't expect doctors to just know everything about every rare disease. So if they haven't encountered something that their patient is dealing with, they could hopefully look at this database and hopefully get a better idea of what's going on. Barbara, thank you so much for that. It's fascinating stuff. Lindsay, I wanted to turn to you for this second segment and talk about uh, a feature that you worked on in the August issue you edited. Uh, there's a health angle to this feature, and the title is Power Plant. This piece delves into a rare, it's an herb, right? Yeah, it is. Rare herb called OSHA that only grows in high elevation areas of southwest Colorado and other parts of the Rockies, and it's said to have healing properties. I had never heard of this herb, OSHA, and this particular piece, which was written by Elizabeth Miller, is much more about just the rare plant. Tell us a little bit about, you know, the the overview of this piece. Yeah, I had never heard of OSHA either. It's kind of one of those things that you hear a word, but a lot of people have heard about it, and it goes by a lot of names. So you might have heard of Colorado cough root, which is a, another name for the same plant. But Elizabeth Miller had sent me a, an idea for this story, and she was essentially telling me that there's this push and pull over this plant that Obviously, it is an herb, and a lot of those things are not FDA regulated, but apparently, um, and a lot of people believe that it is good for lots of things, sore throats, indigestion, helps you with respiratory illnesses, the flu, you know, those kinds of things. And uh, it, it really is kind of a fascinating thing because it, it's a rare plant in that it has a very small like area that it grows in, so its habitat is limited. All right, so there's a very American story in here, and it's about the subjugation of indigenous people. In the 1850s, uh, the story reports that the federal government prohibited Native Americans from collecting OSHA in national forests, even though they'd likely been using the plant for centuries in spiritual practices and for healing. Has that been solved? Has the federal government resolved that? And what's that situation look like now? Right. So, you know, when when Native Americans were moved to reservations, obviously their traditional homelands, they were not in their traditional homelands. And in those traditional homelands, they had access to OSHA, which they had been collecting, like you said, probably for millennia. Uh, yes, there has been an update in that. Thank, thank goodness. Um, especially in places with the national parks and national monuments and those kind of things, the federal government has worked to make sure that Native Americans and other indigenous groups are allowed to go onto those lands to collect certain plants. Sometimes I think they call them forest products um, to be able to, to use those traditional healing uh, plants and practices. And right now on national forest land, national park, all those things, um, they actually don't even have to get permits. So they can go in and do the things that they need to do for their ceremonial practices. And uh, yeah, it seems like mostly that is working. And so they and other folks, you can't, because of its limited you know, uh, range of growth, you can't just like buy a plot of land and then start cultivating OSHA. Right, it has a, a really funny habitat in that it's actually high elevation uh, territory that it grows in. So between like 9,000 and 11,000 feet. So you can imagine farmers can't just grow OSHA down in their normal plots of, of land. And most people aren't living at 9,000 to 11,000 feet. So you can't just grow it in your backyard. It's also kind of a finicky plant and scientists don't really know why. All of which goes, you know, kind of toward the problem of you have a finicky plant that doesn't grow everywhere that has a lot of people interested in it, not just Native Americans and other indigenous groups. So, and one of those groups is the wellness community, and and this is that push pull that you were 
talking about that that Miller covers in this piece. They want to. It, it seems to me in in reading this that a lot of the folks on the wellness side understand the value of OSHA to uh, the indigenous community, but they also want to share the healing properties and it's, it's sort of broad based as you noted some of the things that can help with. But what is there a conflict there? Like, how do they get access to the OSHA if, you know, A, it's very limited and B, it's the Forest Service, my understanding is, is somehow regulating the collection of it? Correct. So right now, obviously, you know, the wellness industry in the United States and across the planet is mass billions of dollars. And everybody wants whatever is the hot trending herbal product right now. The thing is, is most OSHA grows on national forest land just based on the way that the the land goes, the way that the terrain is. Right now, there is no such thing as a commercial permit for collection of OSHA on any of those lands. A normal person, I could go in and get a permit for personal use. So I could go and collect a pound or two that is just for me. You are allowed to do that. But big companies can't go in and collect all of this to put into their products. They want to be able to do that. They want there to be an actual permitting process, um, an implementation of some kind of system that makes it sustainable. However, a lot of the Native American tribes that have spoken with the National Forest Service does not want that. They do not want this to be commodified. And so there's a little bit of a push and a pull in that way. This also leads to a lot of illegal harvesting, and that's where a lot of the problems start to happen. Uh, and, and it becomes a little bit of a push and pull on how do we get this to a sustainable point so that Native Americans can harvest it, and maybe in a way some sometime that there is a system so that there is not a lot of illegal harvesting of these products. So if you were to go up that scenario that you painted, you could go up, you could get a permit, you could get some... It's the root part of the herb that is has the properties that you would want. How would you use it? Right. So that's exactly right. And the hard thing about this is it doesn't grow back as quickly because you're harvesting the root. All think the about way down. any yeah. Think yeah. about any plant. If you're just snipping off the flower, that's one thing. But you actually are digging up the root here. So if I were to go do it, I could use it. A lot of people use it for sore throats, the flu. You put it in tinctures. Um, there's different t- lozenges Tea, like maybe. teas, those kinds of things. So yeah, that's something that I could do. And I think that the permits are, are pretty low cost for somebody to go in for personal use. If it's so difficult to get, and you talk about the wellness industry being a billion-dollar industry, how much money is there actually to be made here? I think that probably the uh, wellness community would say quite a bit. Um, these these roots sell for, I think, upwards of $200 um, for a, a sizable chunk of root. Uh, and so there's there's a lot of money to be had, and that's why there are people that are going in illegally harvesting this plant and then selling it to the well to you know to big business to wellness you know, herbal products industry folks and you know then they're getting in trouble which is which is not really what anybody wants I may get some of the details wrong on this but there was someone in the wellness community who was talking about the folks who provide him with the OSHA and he was like they have permits and then the reporter Miller actually said well there's no permitting process and he was like I didn't know that <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of it is there's a lot of confusion about how these forests are regulating OSHA and, and other tree, you know, tree and forest products. There's a there's a problem in that people have been harvesting this 
for for centuries, maybe, um, but definitely decades and decades, where a little bit of harvesting was kind of going unnoticed. You're talking about massive swaths of land, and the Forest Service was not regulating it. And then they started to realize that OSHA was maybe becoming a little bit in danger. They were worried about climate change. Uh, Native American tribes were saying we can't find it anymore or as easily as we used to find it. And so the the Forest Service started to try to, to kind of make sure that they were protecting this plant. And now people that have been doing this for years and years and years didn't really maybe realize they were doing something wrong wow. are now yeah. getting caught up in this, you know, regulation to keep OSHA a common plant. Right, right. Thanks, Lindsay. The last feature from the August issue I wanted to chat about today is a little bit on the lighter side, Jess, you wrote a primer for people about disc golf, which saw a huge uptick in participation during the pandemic, given that players are obviously, if you're playing it the right way outside and could be socially distanced. Uh, this is a world I really only heard about in passing, and yet I had no idea it was, it was it's really big. Um, Let's start with some of the history of disc golf for, for the listeners like me who didn't really know or don't know much about it. Sure. So, you know, people have been playing some form of this game since the 70s. That was kind of when disc sports were taking off. And here in Colorado, we had a couple of guys who lived up in Arvada, John Bird and Johnny Roberts. And they were running around Memorial Park in Arvada and they were throwing Frisbees at uh, light posts and trash cans and trees and kind of setting up their own course and teaching people to play. Um, so that's kind of how it got started here. Um, it's just grown and grown. Now, now, if you go out to a course, you're going to see concrete tee pads and these metal baskets with the chains hanging down. I think most of us have probably seen this game being played in green spaces around Denver. Uh, so, you know, it's gotten a lot more sophisticated over the years. Um, but yeah, the origins were, you know, pretty, pretty humble. It sort of uh, feels like kind of grew out of the hippie area era. It may have been later than that. But <laughs> you talk about um, Charlotte, North Carolina as a hotbed for disc golf. But it's clear that the sport has really taken off here in Colorado. And I'm I'm wondering why that is. Yeah, well, I mean, some people would associate, uh, you know, disc golf as being a great sport to play if you are smoking a little marijuana. Um, mm. I will, you know, I won't, I won't confirm or deny <laughs> that. Um, but, you know, some people might chalk that up as a reason that it's taken off in Colorado. I think, you know, again, we had some really early pioneers in the sport who were just super friendly and teaching anyone who wanted to learn. Um, and, you know, we've got this kind of, you know, outdoor recreation, happy populace. People want to be outside and, and doing stuff. So I think that's part of it, too. Seems like a little more exciting to be doing it on the side of a mountain than, you know, on the prairie. Yeah. Perhaps. Um, you know, I didn't even know. I I figured people were just throwing Frisbees around when they're doing this. But it, there's a whole bunch of gear associated with it, starting with the, the discs themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you'd like a primer, I would be happy to take you into my garage where my husband <laughs> has maybe 100 different discs. Wow. Um there's different plastics, there's different weights, there's different shapes that are going to help you um, get different shots that are going to, you know, help you go around a tree or get the distance to cross a lake or, you know, whatever you need to do on these holes that are set up to be, you know, really technically Difficult, challenging. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then there's these stamps they put on them, you know, which are just aesthetic that, um, you know, people go go wild for them and collect the different collect stamps. Them, yeah. They're really kind of little pieces of art. So there's literally a connection to 5280 that was fascinating um one of our diff uh, one of our former employees has a daughter kona panis who now has a half million dollar contract to play disc golf professionally 
professionally. It's over four years, but yes, um, she's still uh, she's on the disc golf pro tour full time. She lives in a van with her. Uh, I think it's fiance. Now they're engaged. Colton Montgomery is another Colorado player. Um, yeah. And they do this full time. They travel the country. Um, and, you know, she's a they have moved to California now. But I think what's cool is that she really credits Colorado and growing up here for how far she throws. So in our thin air here, you really have to basically throw harder to get the disc to go as far as it would at sea level. So we're really known for professional players with, um, you know, really big arms that throw really far. And, you know, we talk about a couple of those other guys in the piece, too. And some of them had very successful results recently, yeah? Yeah, of course. Right after we went to press with this magazine, um, Joe Rivera, who is a teacher, um, I think, in Longmont. Uh, he is in his mid-40s. Um, so he's been doing this a long time. He has a win percentage over 50%, which is just insane, insane. in a sport where tournaments have 50, 60, 70 people. Um, but he won the World Masters division, um, I think maybe three days after I you know, sent the magazine off and couldn't put that in the magazine. So that was kind of a bummer. But was he Was he the one in the piece who said who's, uh, he's the teacher and he's like, I make more in a weekend <laughs> yeah. playing disc golf than I, than I make in a month yeah, teaching? Yeah, it's, it's a little depressing, but you know, he's obviously super pa passionate about both pursuits. Um, but yeah, he's got, you know, uh, all these players are sponsored by disc companies, so they kick in money in addition to the prize money, and it's really becoming big business. Um, yeah, then the other pro from Colorado um, is a guy named Eagle McMahon. He's 24, and he is, like, one of the best players in the world, um, you know, undisputedly. Uh, and he actually suffered a shoulder injury this spring that took away his right-hand forehand throw. I think I'm going to get this right, um, which is one of the primary throws you're going to use. And uh, he... You know, he's really known for the strength of this forehand throw. It's kind of like uh, if you would take away the three-point shot from Steph Curry. Right. Right. He can still score. He can still play. But you're taking away, like, Limiting the his game. best part of this guy's game, right? He came out and won the European Open, which is a just a major, huge tournament, um, without being able to use that throw. Wow. Wow. Uh, yeah, so pretty cool. Speaking of throws, I wanted to ask, I was kind of fascinated with the, the physics of the throws and... You know, you sort of break it down with uh, uh, one of the guys that you interviewed for the piece, but it's kind of fascinating how and the terminology, which I will forget, but, you know, you toss it and then it goes straight and then it kind of curves and then it curves back. Yeah. So we actually we talked to Joe Rivera being a teacher. We thought he was probably a good guy to walk us through this. Um, but a backhand shot, which is kind of your very standard, probably what you're going to throw off the tee a lot of the time. Yeah, it's, it, it, the way these discs are made, they don't fly like Frisbees. They are going to come out of your hand, they're going to turn a little bit to the right, glide, and then they fade back left toward the basket. So it's just kind of this, when you do it right, uh, which is hard to do, uh, <laughs> this beautiful S-curve um, toward your target. I had a question. I've, I've tried this once. I'm not good at it. <laughs> uh, but my question is, um, how do you, you know, what's your best shot for going out and just starting, right? Because I felt like I really should not be out there and didn't know what I was doing. What's the best way to like get involved and learn? Yeah, it can definitely be intimidating. Um, but I think what's something that's really cool about the disc golf community, especially here in Colorado, is that everyone is so friendly. Like I cannot emphasize how friendly everyone I talked to for the story was, how excited they are to teach others and grow the sport. Um, so there's actually some disc golf clubs in the area. Mile High Disc Golf Club is one of the biggest. Um, get on their Facebook page. 
you don't have to, you know, officially join or anything, but they're going to tell you um, when they're meeting up to play, beginner clinics, all kinds of stuff like that, where you can just kind of make friends and, um, you know, find somebody to teach you the sport. Unless, you know, if you have someone in your circle who already plays, ask them. I'm sure they'd be happy to take you out. My husband will take anyone disc golfing <laughs> with him, anyone. Um, but yeah, there's this, you know, kind of learning, going out with someone else, I think is helpful the first time. Well, and you describe in the piece too, the the barrier to entry is, is quite low in that you can buy a couple of discs for maybe 30 bucks for, totally. for a couple. And then there are place, plenty of places where you can play for free. Yes, yeah, most of the public courses in the city are free. Even the nice private ones in the mountains are maybe 10 bucks around, 15 bucks around. So this is not traditional golf. Um, you know, it's much easier to get into. Some of the stores in the area that have popped up are super cool. There's one called Another Round in Arvada that has a bar. So you can go in there, grab a beer, you know, chat with them about your skill level and what you're looking to do. They'll hook you up with a couple of discs. And yeah, you can walk out of there with everything you need to play for 40 bucks. I see a, a trend here, disc golf, cannabis, beer. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it all kind of goes together. Okay, last question. You talked about uh, your husband being passionate about it. Jess, do you play disc golf and what's your handicap? Oh, yikes. Uh, you know, it's funny. I got into it during the pandemic, which like so many people, um, my husband had played in the past. And so he got really back into it and is pretty good. And we would go out and I was pregnant. Um, so I'm going to blame the fact that my center of gravity was changing every week <laughs> on the fact that I That's never fair. got very good. Um, I think the best I ever did at Johnny Roberts, which is a great little, very easy beginner course in Arvada. I think I shot a seven over, which is not not good. What's the favorite um, course but... that you've played on or seen? Yeah. So I went up to Bailey. There's a course in Bailey and they hosted the state's first pro tour event in June. Um, and it is just gorgeous. I mean, it's just these rolling mountains, um, expansive views. You, you get to throw off these really high points down into valleys. So, you know, even if you can't throw very far, your disc is, you know, you have fly. the opportunity, yeah, to really feel like you've, um, you know, ripped a huge shot off. So I know that's a, a favorite of a lot of locals. It's a beautiful course. And I mean, you know, it's like a hike, but you're throwing things at other things, which always kind of makes it more fun. Makes hike a little more interesting. Yeah, and it's, and it's, and it's so friendly. You know, as far as you, most of these courses, you can bring your dogs, you can bring your kids, right. um, even if they're not playing, to walk along. So it's it's really inclusive. All right, I'm going to have to try that. On that note, I think we've wrapped up the third episode of 5280's Behind the Stories. Thanks again to Jess, Lindsay, and Barbara for joining me for this episode. And be sure to check out 5280 Magazine on newsstands and 5280.com for other stories about life in Denver and Colorado. And thank you for listening. If you liked the episode, please leave us a rating or a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you again next time.